And let me get us started with a word of prayer. Our Father, thank you so much for another morning where we have the privilege and honor to worship you. And we consider this a high calling. And you have called us to a high calling. You have called us to a holy calling. And we will see that demonstrated in the book of Numbers a little bit later this morning. And we pray, Father, that we would be sanctified and set apart and renewed for your purpose. And that we would recognize that your plan continues undeterred as we see it in the pages of Scripture. And as we see you work out your purpose with great might and power. And that there is nothing that can thwart it. And that we see the seed coming from Abraham and coming through David and ultimately culminating in the Messiah. And we place all of our hope in that seed who has crushed the serpent's head and will finally do so as we see the culmination of the ages. And so, Lord, we marvel at your goodness to us. We marvel that you have purchased us and bought us by your own Son's blood. And we give you glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to pass around the attendance just in a little bit because I want to wait until... I know sometimes we have people come in a little bit later and so I want to make sure that they have an opportunity to put their names on the attendance sheet. So I'll make a mental note and hopefully I'll remember to do that. Um, just really quick, as a reminder, you have, uh, just by way of administrative items, and I haven't really covered this a whole lot, but you have the BBR papers, right? The Bible book reviews. So hopefully if you're trying to work through assignments, there are these Bible book review papers that you're working on for each book. We've been going a little bit slower here at the beginning, so hopefully that gives you opportunity to keep up with them. And if, if you aren't, that's okay. Don't worry about it. You can always get those done later. There's no... Remember, there's no real due dates to these. Um, I just realized my computer's going to die if this doesn't get plugged in. So there we go. Um, so there's no real due dates to these. So don't worry about that. I mean, there are suggested due dates, but those are, again, just suggestions. You can always get these done and turned in later. There are also uh, some of the bigger papers. Uh, don't be intimidated by bigger, though. They're just like maybe a couple more pages, perhaps of uh, the inspiration and inerrancy paper that is for this module. So we've already covered enough for you to be able to go ahead and complete that one if you want to turn that in. Uh, and then there will be another theology paper. Um, I'm even trying to remember what it is. I don't have it in front of me right now. But there's another theology paper for this module that you'll be turning in as well. So um, I think it has to do with the divine attributes or something like that, divine nature or something. So, anyways, all that to say, um, let me know if you have any questions. I'm always available afterwards here if you want to chat with me, or you can just send me an email if you have any questions on how the assignment should be done. You can also fill out the online link that you should be receiving on the weekly updates of your assignments. There's a link there that you can complete reading and let me know what you've done in terms of your reading and you should be good to go with all of that. I'm, I'm trusting, so that should be good. Alright, well let me go ahead and get us started with what we p did last time because we didn't really finish up the divine nature section here regarding the Trinity and I want to finish that up for us. So where we left off was the New Testament understanding of the Trinity uh, and 
the this um, this understanding of the Trinity that we 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 know could not be fully accommodated within the old covenant framework. The New Testament helps us to understand and clarifies the Trinity, and the Old Testament did so. Uh, to a point, but doesn't really give us a full understanding of the Trinity. Uh, like we talked about last time, the Old Testament establishes plurality. I think that's pretty clear. As you tie things together, you see multiple instances of God being in different persons at the same time in different events, a plurality of even how He talks about Himself. But it doesn't quite tell us each person and exactly who they are and what they're doing, except for God the Father. And it doesn't help to quantify it into three. Like, we don't see it as distinctly three individuals. The New Testament brings that clarity. And that's, that's helpful for us because now we understand where we ultimately see that uh, drawn out in Scripture. So Trinity is basically assumed from the very beginning of the New Testament. It's basically assumed from the very beginning of the New Testament. Uh, and we see this... Um, I'm making sure that I'm actually... Oh, <laughs> I was a little bit further down on my notes than I should have been. Here we go. Okay. Basically assumed, uh, basically uh, from the very beginning of the New Testament. But um, let me give you some direct references here related to the Trinity that we see in the New Testament. Matthew 28:19 should be pretty familiar to you. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. You see each member of the Trinity spoken there. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is mentioned there. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. A lot of these benedictions or... um, Blessing formulas uh, indicate, talk about the Trinity. They mention each member. Notice how there's not like four members of the Godhead, right? There's three members, and that's what's being described in many of these formulas that we see. We also have some indirect references. Romans chapter 15, verse 16 talks about uh, some of the members of the Trinity there and implies that they are tied together. Uh, you have Romans chapter 15 and verse 30 as well. So we have a couple instances there in Romans 15. Uh, you also have in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 there it's mentioned, and then even Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18. We're not going to cover all of these because we've got to keep moving forward, but just some references for you so you can look those up at some point on your own. And, of course, can't go without mentioning John, the Gospel of John, when talking about the Trinity. Because the Gospel of John highlights the Trinity more than pretty much any other book in the entire Bible. John 14, verses 15 through 16, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. I mean, right there, you have all three members of the Trinity mentioned. You have the Father, you have the helper who would be the Spirit, and then you have Jesus talking independently himself, all three members mentioned. In John 16, verse 13 
as well mentions the spirit of truth. He will guide you in the truth and he will glorify me, Jesus says, and all that the Father has is mine. Again, all members of the Trinity mentioned. And obviously there are so many passages in John that we could highlight. We don't have time to cover all of those, of course. But this gives you an idea that the Gospel of John is filled with Trinitarian theology. So now, let's just talk a little bit about the Trinity and the New Covenant. Okay, The Trinity and the New Covenant. Not to be confused with the New Testament, which we've all already mentioned some verses and some cross-references there to talk about that. But the Trinity and the New Covenant. And this is where I was in my notes. So this is where I was talking about Understanding the Trinity could not be fully accommodated within the Old Covenant framework, which is like what I was talking about there. Uh, The Old Covenant or the Old Testament established a plurality, but not a trinity, not a threeness. And so this is important for us to see this. But the Old Covenant was not able to really fully accommodate for this. And like I was saying, the trinity is assumed from the beginning in the New Testament. It seems to happen almost instantly when you turn the page from Malachi to Matthew. You start to see immediately just... Uh, clarity on Jesus and the Spirit and the Father. I mean, from the very beginning in Matthew, you see this. I mean, Jesus' baptism is pretty clear that you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all present at the same time. And you have Jesus presented to the reader as God. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, that the virgin shall be with child he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So right off the bat, we see that clarified and communicated to us. Mark chapter 2, verse 5. This is the incident where Jesus indicates to the, to the man who was um, lame that uh, your sins are forgiven. And, of course... Th- the Pharisees recognize immediately, how can you forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. That's the point. That's the point is that Jesus is God because He can forgive sins. He can authorize that. Jesus really, His ministry clarifies the Trinity. And I can't overemphasize that. That's what's so interesting about this. Because it was so somewhat mysterious in the Old Testament. And he's and the reason why his ministry clarifies the Trinity is because he's the first human being to come and actually had some kind of a history, or not just some kind of he had history of dwelling in the Trinity's presence as one member of the Trinity. So you have for the first time in history that someone is actually coming who actually existed there and was there. And now he's communicating, this is who the Godhead is. And I think it's incredible that God didn't just communicate, hey, from the very beginning, hey, we are three in one, right? He didn't just say that. Because it really sets up for the fact that the Messiah, Jesus, is going to come and he's going to reveal these things from his own eyewitness testimony. And we have the Holy Spirit as well, from the very beginning, in the New Testament, is revealed with far more clarity. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, it talks about the fact that Mary conceives Jesus from the Holy Spirit. 
Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, like I talked about, the baptism of Jesus and the fact that, or excuse me, well, it's in the context of that, but John is baptizing others, and he actually talks about how he will baptize the people with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And, of course, Jesus' baptism, we see the baptism of the Holy Spirit right there as well. The Spirit comes upon him like a dove. And then other passages as well, John 14 and John 16 and so forth, and we've already seen some of those. So, the Trinity seems to belong to the inner life of God known only by those who share that life. And that's why Jesus' coming brought clarity, you could say, to earth dwellers. Right? He brought that clarity to earth dwellers uh, of the Trinity and how it works and um, the roles that the, each member of the Trinity plays. And that actually leads me in as a segue into the functional order of the Trinity. We'll talk just a little bit about that. We have the ontological Trinity. I know these are kind of some big terms. Okay, Ontological just means existence or being, right? The, the fact that you exist, something like that, right? The idea is that ontologically, the Trinity, each member of the Trinity is equal in essence, right? There's no, like... Okay, this one's greater than this one just in all aspects. That's not how that works. There's an equality of being between the persons of the Godhead. But there's also what theologians call an economical trinity, or you could also say a functional trinity. A functional trinity. And this has to do with their roles. That they have different roles, and that there is a subordination aspect to their roles. And that's something that's very interesting, because we must understand that submitting to someone does not mean that you are lesser than them. That's that's hard for us to get outside of because we're so naturally ingrained with the fact that if you're the leader, you're the better one. That's just how we think as humans. And that's not true. And we can see that reflected even in the marriage relationship. And this is why culture struggles with this. But that just because the wife submits to her husband does not mean that she is any way lesser than her husband. And in the same way, just because Jesus submits to the Father does not mean he's any way lesser in his being of Godhead or quality or essence than the Father is. And the same with the Spirit as well. There is a cooperation, a perfect cooperation between the members of the Godhead so that this is not some kind of drudgery. This is not some kind of compulsion. Well, I have to do this. This is something that they love to do and they love fulfilling their roles. And that is exactly how we're called to live as well in our roles, that we love to, to fulfill our roles that way. And we see this actually even reflected in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, as you can see there. Uh, Paul says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And so you have this order of subordination, but yet there is an equality even among us as people, we see that in mankind. So there is an ontological trinity in being, there's an equality there, but there's also an economical trinity. There is different roles and there's different subordinating um, operations going on there. All right, that's trinity, all right? So we've covered trinity, (laughs) not that we've exhausted the trinity, (laughs) Uh, don't get that confused, but 
we've at least covered the aspects in the notes of the Trinity. Really quick, I'm going to pull off and just ask, are there any questions on the Trinity? Because I know it's a big subject. Or anything else that we've covered so far, I guess. I'm going to open myself up to that, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, Van, yeah. I think everybody agrees with the three Trinity, but is it possible that an infinite God could have infinite number of facets that are not revealed? Like a different number of, like more persons that we just don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the reality is is that because Scripture, it's not like it's impossible for God, right? Like like that, like in theory, like theoretically. But it's just that Scripture is so clear as to who the persons are that that's just not the case. We just know that that's not the case, uh, and that's because Jesus' ministry brings full transparency to what's going on in the Godhead. Otherwise, Jesus' ministry does not bring full transparency, and that's a problem. Uh, and so I, I, that, that I, don't, I don't think that's something that even can be entertained because there is, um, each member of the Trinity has made, it's, it's very clear that, that the Godhead is at full work in the salvation plan of man and in the scripture and so forth. So, yeah, it's a good question. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Jerry. Um. Could you kind of summarize the whole internal subordination uh, <laughs> uh, or you know, the ontological argument of the Trinity that Christ is, you know, he's equal yeah. to the Father in essence, yeah. and the economical, you know, just kind of define that. Yes. Oh, man, where to begin? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, yeah. So there is this huge debate, and it's become more popular recently, where it's called, um, well, the debate centers around is, has the Son or is the Son eternally subordinate to the Father? Oh, so, um, it's a big debate, right? Because it's like, okay, so did this, you know, was the Son like, like, we all know that they're all equal. No one's arguing that. I don't think that's the, where the debate's residing at all, right? Then there's some huge problems there. The issue is not at the ontological level, it's not up here, it's down here. Like, has this always been the case? Or, in other words, you could say, will this always be the case? That the Son will always be subordinate to the Father. And so the debate basically rages, because there are a lot of people out there that are really opinionated about it. Um, but basically, the question is, is you know, will the Son eternally stay subordinate to the Father? Uh, and and there are a variety of you know, people that land on different different um, sides of that issue. Um, and now you're like, okay, where do you land? <laughs> um, so, um, I I need to look at it more. I need to research it more. But I tend to lean obviously toward the um, the eternal subordination because of the fact that Jesus is always always human, will always be human after his incarnation. That's always the case. And so there is something to that. And I I tend to lean toward the fact that that is the case because of 1 Corinthians 15, where it talks about he will hand all things over to the Father. So even in the eternal state, there is a handing over of all things and a subordination that goes to the very, very end. That's what seems to be the case. Um, that's how I would argue it. Um, 
Yeah, but that is that is a very theological debate issue. So um, very interesting. So yeah, isn't all through Jesus' life? Isn't he always talking about doing the Father's will? Yes. I mean that he he constantly says that. Yes. Doesn't that lean toward that as well? It does. I think what what people I agree with you. Yeah, I, I think what people would say in response is that that's during Jesus' life, and that's the way that it always is during, while he's here. But then in the future, or maybe now that he's at the Father's right hand, you know, but again, like the terminology, at the Father's right hand, helps you understand that there is, yes, there is an equality there of sorts, but there is also a subordination or like a, a role that he plays in subordination. So, yeah, but I totally agree with you. Yeah, I think that that leans that way. I don't think there's anything in Scripture that would, um, really hardcore tell us like okay Jesus is now going to uh, kind of like get out of that role and then become just equivalent and there's no subordination anymore and the terminology seems to lean the other direction at least in my understanding so yeah it's great I don't know Jaron you're welcome to jump in because I know you've, you've done a lot of study as well so not to put you on the spot but feel free if you have any thoughts as well um, the best way I have understood it in my mind is Jesus has two natures, his human nature and then his divine yeah. nature. And his human nature submits to God. Yeah. His divine nature. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that I think that that helps to really splice it out well because you're seeing how in Jesus' humanity, which he will always hold even throughout the ages, um, is that's the subordinate aspect that we see specifically. And then of course, ontologically, he's e- equal because of his essence and who he is. So, it's great. Good. Good. Any other impossible questions to answer? Uh, okay. That's great. So good. Now, that is really a popular topic right now. Um, not among lay people, but um, among the theologians and the scholars and so forth. And you need to know it because it, you know, the 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 outcome of those conversations affects what you're going to see in future literature down the road in Christian books and sermons and so forth. And it's helpful to be ready to understand what the, how those things work and who God is. Um, so very, very important. Uh, but there's still a lot of clashing going on. So <laughs> just be praying in the seminaries as they continue to work these things out. This, these are good things, though. This is, church history is full of these kind of conversations. That's not a bad thing. That's a very good thing. Okay? All right, let's talk about the holiness of God, and then we'll be done with this, and we'll jump on to numbers and see if we can finish that. And we'll see if we can knock this out in five minutes? I don't know. All right, God is holy, obviously. He's holy. Uh, most often, and this is the question, how, how do you define holiness? What is, what is holiness? Uh, most often it's listed as an attribute of God. And um, an alternative approach is to think of God's holiness being expressed and worked out in all of his attributes. In other words, holiness is kind of regarded as bigger than uh, just one of his attributes. It's not just one cog in the wheel. It's the fact that it's the way the entire... It's the, it's the way that the entire wheel is shaped, if I could put it that way. Uh, it's kind of like... Um, like when you're making beef stew or something, it's not like, well, there's the meat and then there's the potatoes and then there's the carrots and those are like, you know, separate 
pieces that you can almost independently see. It's kind of more like holiness is the seasoning that flavors everything. It's all of it, right? It involves every aspect of who God is. And the word that is used in Hebrew for holy is kodesh. Okay, kodesh. And it basically kind of has this idea of this otherness of God. In ancient Near Eastern background, the way that holiness was understood, it was kind of this divine realm that is separate from the material realm. Okay, The divine realm as separate from the material realm, separate from the human arena. And the noun form, which is the one you have here, Kodesh, Connotes. I love how that word connotes is here in here in my notes here. That's hilarious. Um, it connotates, or like it gives off this idea that the essential nature um, that belongs to the sphere of God's being or activity that He is distinct from things that are common or distinct from things that are profane. Yes, distinct from things that are morally bad, things that are dirty or ugly. Yes, of course that that's true. But it's more than that. It's even distinct from things that are just everyday, like the chairs that you're sitting in, right? Common things. Israel was supposed to understand that God is separate from just things that are just common. Uh, this goes hand in hand really nicely, actually, the word holy, with another ancient Near Eastern background term, which is spirit, <laughs> which is one we're very commonly, or we're very familiar with, it's very common to us. But the idea of spirit and flesh have that same dynamic. That flesh is material, it's earthly, it's of the human arena. But then there is a spirit realm that is distinct and uh, not human. It's not part of this arena that we live in. Say holy holiness also acts in that way. And that's what's so beautiful obviously about the new covenant is because the new covenant actually makes us holy. It invades our arena. That's incredible. That these two distinct, you could say mutually exclusive arenas of holiness and then the commonness can be brought together and that that which is common can be made holy is an incredible thought. And that's what the Bible goes after and describes that in great detail. Um, New Testament word for for holy is hagias. That's the adjective. It's just holy. And then hagiadzo, which is I make holy, meaning in the basic sense of those words, to be sacred, to be set apart, to be pure. It's the quality possessed by things and persons that could approach a divine person. That's the idea. It's this quality that you need to have that would allow you to be able to to approach a divine person. That would at least be the Hellenistic Greek meaning of hagias. The Father is described as holy in John 17, the Son in Mark 1 and Luke 1, the Spirit, especially we actually see called the Spirit of Holiness in Romans 1 verse 4. But again, all throughout the New Testament, the Spirit is called the Holy Spirit. Yes, so He is holy, right? So we know that. And I, there are three things, and this is where we'll end on this section here, but there are three things, uh, three connotations, three elements, or three facets to holiness. 
And one of those is majesty holiness. Majesty holiness. God is metaphysically separate from and greater than anyone or anything else without any necessary moral connotation. In other words, forget about the moral one for a second. We'll talk about that. There is a moral aspect to holiness. But this is just talking about separateness. He is separate. Completely separate. This will go into a little bit hand-in-hand with number three, but I decided to split out one and three here so that you can get an idea. He is entirely separate. He is other than. This is the arena concept. Spherically, if we can talk about it that way, they don't touch. He is other than. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, models this. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, there's that word, I dwell in the high and holy place. There's that distinctness. This is where I dwell, not with you in the common area. I dwell in a high and holy place, and also, this is what's so cool, also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Ah, so God's holiness is going to invade the common. The idea of separation, it's this idea of unapproachableness, otherness, the quality of godness, of the divine Godhead. But then, of course, there's the one that we often think about, which is purity holiness, purity holiness. How holiness works itself out ethically, how it works itself out morally. God is morally separate from and purer than anything and everyone else. Inviable purity is kind of the idea that we would be referring to here. Speaks of separation from moral wickedness, uh, sin, immorality. 1 Peter 1 verse 15, you may know this one well. God calls us to a holy calling. But it says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So again, talking about morality, talking about purity in the way that you conduct yourself in life. God is morally separate from and pure than anything, everything and everyone else. And then, this is the one that I added into the notes, but unprecedented holiness. Unprecedented holiness. And yes, it, it kind of... It has a little bit to do with this separateness of like spherically, like he's just other than, he's he's in a separate realm is kind of that. But it also helps us to see that God is separate in the way that he operates, in the way that he does things, like in action. God operates in ways that have no comparison. And that's kind of what I'm referring to here with holiness. We cannot treat him as any common or known thing. He is completely distinct. And that's why I use this word unprecedented. It's something that you cannot compare it with. That's unprecedented. We've never seen anything like that before. And case in point is the gospel itself. That's why I would argue the gospel is a great example of holiness. Because it is something that is other than. There is nothing that you can compare it with and really capture its full understanding. It's incredible. Because the idea of God 
justifying sinners and yet upholding his upholding his justice is something that goes beyond what anyone could have fathomed. And I think that's what Paul is talking about when he says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, that he orchestrated a plan like this that would actually be able to make this work. That's incredible. That's unfathomable. That's unprecedented. We have never seen anything like that before. And if you compare Deuteronomy 29.29, uh, this is so funny. Or not just funny, but it's actually incredible. Deuteronomy 29.29 and Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. You see, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things which are revealed belong to us. I would argue, which is incredible, is that the secret things he's talking about there are how he's going to resolve this issue of bringing Israel back to himself. In the context... But Israel's not going to know exactly how that's all going to work until you see it fleshed out through the rest of Scripture. Until you actually see the gospel come onto the scene and things get clarified and how Jesus' ministry and the fulfilling of the Davidic covenant and all of these things that are yet future actually bring this all together. And so even like in Psalm 131, verse 1, my heart is not proud, my eyes are not lifted up, I do not involve myself in great matters, extraordinary matters, things too wonderful for me. That word wonderful, extraordinary, that's kind of the word unprecedented. It is beyond what we have ever seen before. It is miraculous. And I would argue that is the concept of holiness. That it is, God is unprecedented in the way that He works and operates even in the gospel itself. Okay, so that's that's holiness. That's how I would at least want to communicate to you is in those three parts, majesty, purity, unprecedented holiness. Okay, any quick questions on holiness before we move on to numbers? That's quite a segue, just jump into numbers, but any questions there? All good? All right, well, I'm going to go ahead and open up this guy here and change notes. Bam. Here we go. And there we go. Bringing that in there. All right, good. All right, we're on numbers. All right, numbers in Hebrew is the term bid midbar. Bid midbar. And bid midbar means in the desert. (laughs) All right, so that's a little bit different than the word numbers that you're used to for a title. But bid midbar means in the desert. And actually... That kind of fits, I think, a little bit more with the what's going on there in Numbers than actually the word Numbers does. Now, the, the, I think the Greek, that's where we get our title for Numbers, arithmoi. Okay, arithmoi is the word Numbers in Greek. Okay, that's literally what it means, Numbers. So I think that's where we, that's where we get that from. But in the desert tends to communicate a little bit more what's going on here, and I'll explain that more as we walk through this. Now, I'm going to kind of blast through these, because if you've been here, you've been taking notes, you know that books 1 through 5 are basically some of the same thing, right? You've got the same author, you've got the same audience, you've got a lot of the same setting going on here. So Moses is our author. I'm not going to go after that. Uh, any more than just saying that because I've done that plenty of times already. The audience is the second generation of Israel. And we understand that this is probably, if it wasn't composed in the middle, 
of their wilderness wanderings, it was certainly composed toward the end. And obviously, when it comes to Numbers itself, it had to have been composed toward the end of their wilderness wanderings because that's how the book ends. It actually ends at that point. So we would understand that to be the case. So the when, the when is talking about, obviously, the the when of... uh, When was this book actually written? Approximately 1406 B.C., almost 40 years, or about 40 years after the exodus from Egypt. They've wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And remember that 1446 B.C. is that key date that helps to separate the liberal scholars from the conservative scholars. All you need to do is, if you come up and you were to meet a scholar... And you're trying to figure out, is he conservative or is he a liberal scholar? Just ask him, when was the date of the Exodus? And if he says, it was 1146, then you're like, you're a liberal. right? But if he says, it's 1446 and he doesn't even have to think about it, then he's a conservative. Okay, that's basically what that means. All right? So 1446 BC, that helps us to know... The dividing line between basically liberal Old Testament scholars and conservative Old Testament scholars. Okay, now that's the win, and we'll talk about a little bit more the win of the actual events of the book, but that's the win of the the writing of the book. Now, the where, the where. Remember that this is the fourth part of a five-part series. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, number four, and then Deuteronomy. Okay, you've got Torah, you've got the law. Pentateuch. And the setting is the where. This is where this is taking place and where it was written as well. The wilderness of Sinai, the plains of Moab. You're on the other side of the Jordan River, poised to take the promised land. Yes? And that is really important because you got second generation Israel waiting there just on the edge of their seats ready to take this land uh, certainly some probably some nervousness but definitely much more ready in their hearts to do this and to take the land that God has promised them and numbers really acts as a motivator because this is the account of first generation Israel failing your parents failed that's basically what numbers communicates And so second generation Israel is going to take numbers and really learn from that and say, okay, we need to obey the Lord our God with all our hearts. Sneak preview into Deuteronomy. So they're poised to take the promised land. And the actual dates of the events themselves span, I don't know why I put this here. I probably should put this in the when because that makes more sense. But whatever. It's in the where. The dates of the events and numbers span actually 40 years of time. So this is a pretty significant uh, section of Scripture here. Not like Leviticus, which was literally like 30 days of time was covered in Leviticus. Here we're talking about about 40 years, spanning from 1445 B.C. Right as Israel sets out from Sinai, they've been given all of the instructions in Exodus and then Leviticus, communicating with the law and the expectations and the priesthood and so forth and how it's all to be set up. And it basically picks up from that point all the way until they wander for 40 years in the wilderness and then they're finally ready on the other side of the Jordan River to take the promised land. That's, that's the dates and of the book itself. 
The first nine and a half chapters are not quite in chronological order, as interesting as that may be. Uh, And what it does is it's really telling us, kind of in a more thematic order of events, what God spoke in the first 50 days of that second year. So you have like, Leviticus covers 30 days sitting at the base of Mount Sinai, and then you have another 50 days at the beginning of Numbers, about the first nine and a half chapters, that communicates... Uh, how Israel is going to structure themselves as they walk to the promised land. And it's really important. In fact, it's so important, I'm going to draw something. Hold on a second. Oh, I'm getting all the sneak preview to all the pictures. Sorry. Um, Let me go here. Oh, well, that didn't help. Hold on. Let me come down here. And we'll do that. Nope, we'll do that. I love Surface because... The alt and shift and control keys all like vary depending upon what you're plugged into. Uh, let's do this. There we go. Yeah. Okay. I wanted a blank canvas. Okay. So basically the way that they're structured is that you have... Uh, let me see if I can change this to black here. You have the tabernacle here. I'm just going to put a T for tabernacle. Okay. And the way that they go about... This is a really interesting order. If you haven't really seen this, this is really cool. If you have, you can just fall asleep for a second here. Um, they actually go out in this kind of a, uh, an order, like this. A lot of boxes here. Here we go. This is how they're moving. Isn't that interesting? It's not quite probably what we would expect. The temple, or sorry, it's not the temple, the tabernacle is right in the middle. And it's the highlight. It's the feature. It's putting on display, this is our God. And the Levites occupy this space here as they're moving. But then you have the different tribes of Israel. And that's what each of these other rectangles represents. And the tribes are ordered very specifically where you have... Um, and I'm trying to remember exactly how this works, but I believe, and someone can correct me if you want, Judah is on the east, I believe. Uh, which is important, because the east is where you face God. That's kind of the idea. The east is like the front. They didn't think north as being like the top. I really should have inverted this. So really what it is, if, if we did invert this here, it would be like this, where the Jews always thought geographically east up here that's how they would think and the west would be down here the south would be over here and the north would be here that's how they thought and so Judah occupies I believe this space here and then you have two different tribes and I'm not going to rehash all of this two tribes underneath him and you have different different tribes that are occupying the sides and the rear of this movement of the tribes. And there's significance to where these tribes are located and how they play out. It all stems from the fact of literally how each of these guys live their lives during Joseph's time, during Jacob's time. And it played a role into how this was going to play out. And it plays a role into the prophecies that are made in in Genesis 49 and how things are going to play out that way. And then in Deuteronomy later on, those are rehashed and how their tribes are going to, things are going to play out. But there is significance to this. But the ultimate goal here of this setup 
is not to feature Judah, but it is show that he does play a prominent role and he will play a leadership role because we know that who comes from the tribe of Judah? Jesus does, yeah? So you have kings and rulers coming from the tribe of Judah. So that's definitely true. But what is being featured ultimately is this. You have this taking place where the the tabernacle is put on full display. So this is how they're moving, okay? And I just wanted to give you a quick visual on that so you understand how that goes. Okay, now, um, that gives us an idea of how this is being set up in chapters 1 through 9 or so. They're setting up so that they can have this movement that shows the nations who is being featured. Our God, Yahweh, is being featured. Uh, And then, uh, you have chapters 10 through 19, more or less, you have some problems surfacing, such as the rebellion of Miriam and Aaron. Uh, You have the spies going to the land and then they complain, we can't take them, we're not going to be able to take this land, they're too big for us. Uh, You have the rebellion of Korah uh, and uh, you have the complaining with the water and the rock and, and all of these stories here. And what you see featured over and over and over again is rebellion and disobedience and God's discipline but also His mercy. You also see his mercy put on full display. And because they complained about going into the land of Canaan and we can't, we can't do this, God basically gives them what they want. Okay, you're not going to go into the land then. If you don't want to go in, you're not going to go in and you're going to have to wander for 40 years in the wilderness, which is something that they really don't want to do. So then they actually try to go into the land on their own and then they get slaughtered as a result of it. Which is, again, what they expected would happen, right? They said that. It's like they literally are writing their own fate for themselves. Now, I mean, from a certain point of view, you could say God did not desire that they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, but it is the sin and rebellion that actually caused this to happen. And this is why I wanted to show this to you, uh, because this wandering in the wilderness is like, you can't do this unless you're like, a very small family, and you're just constantly moving, and you're eking out your your existence. Because this is, I wish I had jumped ahead, and then you could see some of these pictures. But basically, this gives you a picture of, this is an actual picture of where they wandered. This is the Nahal Paran area, which is one of the areas that they wandered in. This is what it looks like today. Uh, and I, this, I credit this to the pictures that Dr. Todd Bolin took Uh, He's an expert photographer as well as Bible teacher there at the Master's University. And um, he sells these, actually, these pictures. And I found a half-price discount one time, and I was like, I have to buy that. So I got a whole set of these, and now I'm fulfilling my dream by using them in BTI, which is phenomenal. So I'm actually really excited about this. But this is an area where 
uh, they wandered. And uh, not if you get to go to Israel, but when you go to Israel, uh, you will get to witness this on the tour guide. Uh, again, not during this time. Don't go to Israel right now. But you will be able to go sometime, hopefully, in the future. At least when Jesus comes back, you'll be able to go. Although this might get changed really fast and look a lot better. But this is incredible to see what they would be experiencing. Imagine trying to support 600,000 males, so probably 2 million people, on this. Right? Like, that's just... You can't do that. Uh, Some of the aerial views here are just incredible to kind of getting a picture of of, uh, this area. There's just nothing out here. And this is where they wandered for so long. Uh, This is... um, picture of Moon Valley here. The, the first three pictures were of the Nahal Paran area. Uh, this is a quite a, a striking picture here. A lot of rugged mountains and cliffs uh, and uh, it gives you quite an appreciation for what was going on here. These are actually some specific rocks called the Pillars of Solomon. Uh, and I would argue that this may be similar to what Moses struck you know, when I was a kid, I was thinking, like, there was a little rock that he struck, and I was like, you know, bam, and then, like, a bunch of water flew out, right? And, like, uh, it's a great flannel graph picture of what's going on, but, you know, this is a little bit more accurate of what's going on. Obviously, to, to give enough water for an entire nation to drink, we're talking about probably some rock cliff, and that, the, the terminology of the Hebrew, I believe, supports that. So, just to give you a little bit of appreciation, that this was quite a wandering uh, in the wilderness that was very, very, very much put them to the test. When they mentioned to Moses, you're going to make us die in this wilderness, they really understand what they're talking about. Yes, they will die in this wilderness. Yes, they will. If there's no divine intervention, they will definitely die in this wilderness. They will probably die of thirst before they even die of hunger. And yet God provides for them every step of the way. And it is miraculous. And you can see how it requires miracle after miracle to accomplish this. Water coming from rock, no one does that. Like, you can't just hit a rock with a staff and then just water comes out. That doesn't happen. Uh, Manna coming from the sky every day, just enough for what you need, that's miraculous. You can see how this is teaching Israel that man needs God to survive. Man needs God to survive. Israel needs God for her entire history. That's what is teaching Israel. You need me for every moment of every day. And that's incredible because it it's showing that wilderness is really a theme that beca- that really sp- spans all of Scripture. And this is really where it begins. That wilderness is a time of testing. It's a time of testing to see whether you will really believe God's Word. Uh, oh my goodness, there's so much there. But we'll, we'll cover that, I think, in a moment uh, as we wrap up here. The why. Let's talk about the why of the book. Now, not to confuse this, okay, I'm, we're saying, talking about the why of the book, but... Numbers is the win of God's kingdom plan. So don't get that confused, right? All right. So Genesis, okay, just as a review, Genesis is the is the who? And Exodus is the what? And then Leviticus is the how. Okay? And numbers is the when. Okay? And then Deuteronomy will be the 
why, and then Joshua will be the where. And literally the 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 literary outlines of these books are actually centered around those themes. We're not just like making that up. Oh, that's my outline for for the Torah and for Joshua. No, this is exactly how they are outlined. Genesis is the who. It tells us the who of God's kingdom plan. It's the people of Israel and it's the seed, which ultimately culminates in Messiah. You got Exodus is the what of God's plan. This is the national charter for Israel. You're to be a kingdom of priests for me. That's the what of God's plan. You have uh, Leviticus being the how. This is to be centered around holiness. That is how you're going to approach God. Numbers is the win. It actually sets up literarily, we'll see this in a moment, how you have the first generation of Israel and the second generation of Israel and their genealogies. You have Deuteronomy as the why and you loving the Lord your God with all your heart. This is why we do this. We are to fear Him and obey Him all of our days. And then Joshua is the where, which is literally taking the land of promise. Okay, So you literally answer every single important question when it comes to God's kingdom plan for Israel and it's established in the first six books of the Bible. That's so important. Uh, Numbers then specifically informs us that the people of Israel must wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And this is not the right time for them to take the land of promise because of sin, because of rebellion among the people. So this is not the right time. And so sin creates delay. That's such an important point. Sin causes a delay. Sin causes, you could say, an exile. They are exiled to the wilderness. And it establishes a theology of delay. It's so interesting. Because now we have a precedent set for why even Jesus has a first coming and then a second coming, right? Because sin and rebellion and refusal of God causes what? A delay. So when people are like, there's no such thing as a delay theology in the Bible, that that can't be possible. It's literally established as a precedent from the very beginning in numbers. There is a delay. And this wilderness of testing, this theme of wandering and testing in the wilderness, becomes a theme throughout Israel's history. Like the exiles of Israel uh, and Judah, when they go to Babylon and go to Assyria, and even when they... You know, Egypt, when they were exiled prior to this, this is a time of testing for them. David and his wanderings in the wilderness. He wanders in the wilderness of Judea, right? This is a time of testing for him. And then you even have Jesus and his wandering in the wilderness for how many days? 40 days and 40 nights. Is that a coincidence? No, because it's to point you back to the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness for Israel. And how Jesus mastered Deuteronomy. Because he quoted Deuteronomy three times to the devil. And he shows, I was able to succeed where Israel failed. This is what Israel should have said in the wilderness when they were tempted. But they failed and they rebelled and they sinned. Now I'm going to show you that I did it right. Okay, so, um, sorry, I was supposed to put all of these down here. There we go. All right. So the purpose, ultimately, here of Numbers, the book of Numbers, the purpose is to recount to Israel the sin of the first generation who came out of Egypt, leading to 40 years of wilderness wanderings and a delay to conquer the land of Canaan. At least that's how I would word the purpose of, of Numbers. 
Okay, really quick and blasting through this. And you can always look at the PowerPoints later if you need to catch up with some of this stuff. Uh, themes, the wilderness. It's a word that's used a lot in the book, obviously, which makes sense. Uh, the rebellion of Israel. And we see this constantly. Um, Korah's rebellion and the spies and Miriam and Aaron. And then you have even the most infamous one, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back, uh, the sin at Baal Peor, which is... Uh, just a heinous sin where there's just sexual immorality going all over the camp and it's just a horrible thing. But out of that comes the covenant with um, Phineas, which is very interesting. So there's mercy there as well, which is incredible. Um, and really, the the Israelites should not really have been that scared of the Canaanites because actually they had like 600,000 men and according to historical reports, the Canaanites probably only had 100,000. So they were like six times larger than them but because of their giant size, they were intimidated by that uh, and they did not believe in, in the Lord's word that, that they could uh, defeat them. That's the reason why there is an exile into the desert and a wandering uh, we also see the wrath of God toward his disobedient people on display constantly, but then also the blessing of God, and especially through Balaam of all people, which he was a, uh, a, wicked, uh, a wicked prophet, but he was one of the expert, so to speak, prophets of that day, which is why Balak hires him, um, and he wants him to curse Israel and Balaam's like I can't do that because I can't mess with Yahweh God like I do mess with other gods. Other gods I can do that with. I can like change what they're going to say. With Yahweh, every time I speak for Yahweh in the past, I have to say what he said because it always comes true. And so he just constantly he will put his foot in the ground until finally Balaam tries to literally say the opposite thing at the final the final um, curse. And literally the Spirit of God, it says, comes upon him and intercepts and just speaks blessing upon Israel. It's incredible. Because this is showing that God's covenant promise to Abraham is so sure, even when someone is trying to even say, cursed is Israel, he can't say it. He can't say it. Because it is going to bring blessing to Israel and God is undeterred in his plan for that. Okay. There's more on that we could cover, but uh, the word numbers, in other words, not just uh, sorry, not the word numbers, but the concept of numbers, countings and genealogies, evidence of God's grace. We see this constantly even the fact that when you compare the numbers between the first genealogy and the second genealogy, the tribes that were obeying more than other tribes actually gain more people and those who are disobedient lose people. It's really interesting. Um, the patience patience of Yahweh is seen on display and then of course holiness like we just talked about a little bit earlier. And then finally just to talk talk a little bit about, uh, and this will be just for a second here, the literary structure of this book. I mean, it basically just centers around two different facets here. You have the first generation of Israel and their genealogy from the very beginning, and it's described by a series of events where Israel sins and perishes, and then the second generation of Israel, Israel regroups and they conquer. They begin to conquer nations on the other side of the Jordan River as you finish the book of Numbers. Uh, so that gives a, hopefully a, a good understanding of how this book is structured. The outline of the book is really framed by these genealogies, and that really corresponds well with the, the when theme of the book. Okay, All right, there's more we could definitely cover with numbers. I know there was a lot. Uh, we're out of time, so let me go ahead and close this in a word of prayer, and then we'll get going to the main service. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity that we've had this morning to engage your word and to talk about your the Godhead, 
the Trinity, three in one, your holiness, your separateness, your unprecedentedness, and your holiness on display even in the book of Numbers, and the wilderness wanderings, the sin, the rebellion, the judgments and the punishments that were put upon Israel and how humbling those were. Um, It's hard to even imagine living your entire life in the wilderness because you have to, because you've been punished by God. But then we also see the mercy of God. The fact that you, O God, keep your promises. You keep your promises to Abraham, keep your promises to your people. And because of that, that's why we are a church here that really advocates for the fact that there is a land for future Israel physically because you are a God who keeps His promise to Israel and to Abraham. So Lord, we thank You so much that You are a God who keeps His promises because we depend upon that even under the new covenant of Jesus Christ. And we thank You so much for these things. We pray that You would give us joy as we worship You this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.